Amen. Thank you, Brother Brian. If you have your bulletins, you can open them. We're at the catechism portion of our service, and we're going through the Baptist catechism. Catechism is just a way to teach the truths of Scripture by way of question and answer. Uh, So we've been going through the Baptist catechism, which corresponds to our Baptist uh, confession of faith. So each week, uh, we'll say, I'll say the question, and then in unison, we'll say the answer together. And we're on the last section of the catechism where we learn about prayer. So, um, question 105, what is prayer? Answer, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Uh, Or as my kids like to say it from the shorter catechism, prayer is simply talking with God. Uh, That's the short version of it. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks with our catechism is we're going to go through the specific uh, pattern that Jesus gave us with the Lord's Prayer, uh, which is actually I preached through in the Sermon on the Mount some months ago. You're welcome to go on the website and look back through those. Uh, But he doesn't leave it to ourselves on how to pray uh, to a holy and righteous, loving and just God. He gives us uh, the whole word of God. Uh, we can use many parts of the scripture to give us, uh, to inform us on how to pray, pray. But specifically, he gives us the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer. It's not Jesus' prayer, because in it, he says, forgive us our sins, and Jesus doesn't need to be forgiven of sins. So it's actually the, the prayer for his disciples. Uh, and we're going to look at the model prayer that he gives us in the Lord's Prayer and how to pray those petitions. Amen? Amen. All right, so now we are going to turn our attention to our next hymn. Um, So I'm going to get my help. Come back up. So if you have your hymnals, turn to hymn 164, and let's stand to our feet, and let's sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus.
Well, this next song is a new song. What we're going to do, since we've uh, never heard this before, it's 411, All Your Anxiety. It actually goes with the scripture text today that I'll be preaching from in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew chapter 6. So what I'm going to have do is Ms. Barber play through the first verse, uh, just with no singing, and the first chorus, so we can kind of get the um, get the tune, uh, and then right after the first chorus, we'll just go through and start singing at verse one. All right. Y'all think y'all got it? All right, so as we're singing this, you know, the Lord doesn't, it's not his design desire that you live with uh, a load of care and worries and anxieties. So that's what the sermon is going to be on today. So as we sing this, uh, may it be your heart's desire and heart's prayer that you have a friend in Jesus that can bear all of your burdens. Amen? Amen. All right.
you. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Great job. Thank you for the help, young children. And Ms. Barbara, we haven't skipped a beat over here on the piano with Miss Pat being out. I can't speak for the guy leading the music, but... Um, well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today we're going to examine an issue that affects most Christians uh, in their daily walk, and that's the issue of worry. Matthew chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> for our guests and those new here, I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, preaching uh, verse by verse expositionally. And today we get to this part of the sermon, which, which really covers, as far as like a topic, it really is a big part of the sermon. So I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. We're going to look at what the Word of God has to say about worry. Hear the words of God. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And you, <clears throat> who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you oh so much for your word. Lord, we love you, and we desire, God, to open up our hearts and ears to hear what your word has to say to us today. Father, I pray that what I speak here would be that which you have spoken, Lord, nothing more, nothing less, and that you would conform your people to the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, uh, my message centered around the birth of Christ and how the birth of Christ brought peace on earth, as in we can have peace with God through reconciliation and forgiveness of our sins. How we can have peace in our hearts and peace in our minds in this troubled world. And how we can have hope for a future peace here on earth. There is one thing that can and probably has robbed you of this peace. And that's worry. Most Americans spend most of their lives worrying Worrying about everything and anything, and even worrying about worrying. Many of us worry about the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, water, health, shelter, house situations. Many people worry about family situations, family dynamics. Many people worry about the economic worries out there. Many people worry about the instability 
in the nations, instability in our own nation. Uh, Many people even spend a lot of time worrying about global warming. Yes, people do that. Well, let me tell you, friends, worry and peace are mutually exclusive. You can't have one and have the other. Jesus, in our text today, spends a good chunk of his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount addressing the issue of worry. Being consumed with worry, listen to me, it's not fitting for a Christian to be consumed with worry. And it's God's desire that you would live free from it. So I want to look at this text, and I want to look at it under three headings. First, the command in its positive, or excuse me, in its negative sense, the prohibition, the command, then the root and the remedy, and then the result. So let's look at the command. It's very simple. Look at verse 25. He says, do not be worried about your life. As a matter of fact, five times within this small section, he's either directly telling us not to worry or he's indirectly telling us not to worry. There in verse 25, do not be worried. Then in verse 27, he says, who of you can be worried? Or who of you being worried can add even an hour to his life? Then in verse 28, again, why are you worried about clothing? Verse 31, so then do not worry. There it is again. In verse 34, again, so do not worry about tomorrow. Five times. And please notice that this is in the imperative command. He has not given us an option. Jesus is commanding his disciples to not worry. The Apostle Paul echoes the Lord's sentiments in Philippians 4, 6, where he says, be anxious for nothing, right? This does not mean that we are not to be concerned about anything, okay? We should be concerned about things that are worth being concerned about. But unfortunately, some, to justify this, they think that being consumed with worry and anxiety and fear about something means that they have a greater level of concern for a certain thing, okay? And that's not where we want to go with that. We can and should be concerned about the issues that are facing us, but we must not be consumed with worry. The word here in the Greek and in Philippians 4, 6, where we're commanded not to worry, is merimeo. Merimeo, excuse me. It means to be troubled with cares. This is the word in the original language. The idea and the picture here is to be pulled apart in different directions. Okay? Now, interesting, the English word that we get worry comes from an old English word that means to strangle. And isn't that a good picture of what it means to be consumed with worry? It's almost like we're being strangled from every end and we can't do anything. We can't get anywhere because we're being pulled by opposite, uh, uh, by opposite uh, concerns in a, in a sense where we're overburdened by them. Now, this word in the original language is the same word used in Luke 10. Uh, you know the account, Mary and Martha, Right? Jesus comes to their home, and what does Mary do? Mary goes immediately and sits at the feet of Jesus, 
And she's there the whole time. And what is her sister Martha doing? She's working. She's, do, she's worried about all the preparations, right? I got Jesus in my house. How many of you would be like Martha? You'd be over there, you know, well, I got the Lord Jesus in my house. I'm going to go make sure that I'm, I'm dusting, right? I don't want him to see any of that dust on my furniture. I'm preparing all the food. I'm doing all that. And Martha starts to get a little upset and goes to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help. <clears throat> and what's Jesus' response? He says here in Luke 10, 41, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things but only one thing is necessary for mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken from her this is the same word that's used in our text today to be worried it's to be anxious it means to be pulled apart to be feel to feel like being strangled by the cares of the world which are pulling you in opposite directions and pulling you away from your godly aspirations and your hopes in Christ and the things that you want to accomplish as a Christian. Somebody consumed with anxiety, listen to me, it's different than being concerned. Uh, often people who struggle with worry and, and anxiety, they think if, if somebody else isn't so worried like them, then they, they don't care, right? That we're not talking about putting our heads in the sand and not being concerned about things that we see happening right in front of our face. That's not what the text is prohibiting. Uh, but somebody who is consumed with anxiety is like I picture a rag doll that somebody's being pulled by multiple strings in opposite directions so much to the point that that tension gets so great that it eventually snaps and you see that in many people who are overwhelmed with worry and anxiety to be consumed with anxiety is to be robbed of the Christian joy to be robbed of the peace that's available to all God's children it's not designed for his children to live consumed in worry. Uh, not only are we commanded, I don't, ever, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we're commanded to not worry. Uh, we're commanded, it almost can be interpreted as a stop worrying. Okay, stop. He's just, that's what Jesus is telling us here. But <clears throat> it's also important to know how futile it is uh, to worry. Look at verse 27 here in our text. He says, and who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? What is worrying going to do? Is it going to help you? Is it going to add whatever you're worrying about? Uh, is it going to help this situation? Is it going to actually do something? Concern will because concern leads us to action. But I'm talking about being consumed and overwhelmed with fear and worry and anxiety. It's futile. It is absolutely Pointless is what our Lord is saying here. Not only because it won't do anything, but also because God already knows what you need. Look at verse 32. After saying the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, and we're going to get to that, he says, your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. So it's futile to worry, and God already knows what you need. So why are you worrying? And the great thing about this is that Jesus doesn't leave it up to us to figure out how to fix the problem. He doesn't just say, do not worry, period. He actually gives us the root of the issue and the remedy all in this text 
today. He gives us the remedy. So if you struggle with worry, pay attention to the text today. He gives us the remedy on how to fix the problem. But I want to warn you, it's not in a self-help book. It's not doing yoga or any other forms of meditation. It's not acupuncture. It's not visiting a therapist. Listen, it's not taking a pill. The remedy, listen, the remedy to your problem of worrying is theological in nature. It's theological. The root of the issue is this, is not having a proper understanding of the doctrine of God's sovereignty and his providence. That is the root of the problem of worry. Not having a proper understanding of God's sovereignty and his providence. Jesus gives us two illustrations from nature here. And these two illustrations point to the same truth. Jesus is telling his disciples that their problem is not psychological. Their problem is not physiological. Their problem is spiritual. The problem is that you either don't know, understand, or trust in the sovereignty of God and how he executes his sovereignty by his divine providence. So again, to properly treat any ailment, we have to first diagnose the issue. And this is what Jesus does. He gives us the diagnosis. It's a lack of understanding or trusting in God's sovereignty and his providence. Once you understand God's sovereignty and his providence, then and only then can you fulfill the positive command, which is found in verse 33. Look what he says here. He says, but first, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's the positive command. The negative is to stop worrying. The positive is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, Jesus could have just skipped all the middle stuff, all the illustrations about birds and the grass of the field. And, you know, he could have just said, hey, y'all stop worrying. But instead, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. But he didn't because we first have to look at these illustrations and understand God's sovereignty and his providence and how he orders things together before we can then obey the positive command to seek first the, right, uh, the kingdom and all his righteousness. We have to first have right believing. First, we have to believe the right things to then do the right things because right believing leads to right behaving. So let's look at these two illustrations, one about birds and one about the fields, the grass of the fields. These illustrations, Jesus uses oftentimes earthly illustrations to give a point. Both of these illustrations point to God's providence and sovereignty and that they extend over all creation from the smallest to the greatest. Our catechism puts it this way, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And God executes his eternal decrees, his eternal plan through his acts of providence. He has declared the end from the beginning. All things whatsoever that shall come to pass, God has declared them, before he created time. 
and God's providence is the way that he executes his eternal decree. God sits in the heavens, it says in Psalms 115, and does whatever he pleases. He said to Job that, or Job said that uh, nobody can thwart your plan. He has declared the end from the beginning. That's God's decree. Follow him? His providence is the way that he executes his decree by governing all of their creatures and all of their actions. So that Jesus links the truth to the root of the problem of anxiety. Now let's look at this first illustration and I'll show you what I mean. Verse 25 and 26. After he gives the command, do not be worried about your life, verse 25, as to what you will eat, what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? So when he says in verse 26, food, drink, or clothing, he's summarizing, first of all, the, the basic necessities of life. He's saying don't worry about them. Now, look at the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. Here's the remedy that Jesus is giving to our inclination to worry. He gives this illustration to convey the truth that God's providential care is over all of his creation, including the smallest of animals. You see, the Jews would have known their Old Testament. This is from the beginning, that God's providence is over even the smallest of his creatures to where he even, by his hand, feeds the animals of the earth. Psalm 147 Verse 7 says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beasts its food, to the young ravens which cry. And again in Psalm 136, 25, <clears throat> who gives food, God gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness is everlasting. In God's rebuke to Job, in Job 38, 41, God asked Job, who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? So here, Jesus is proclaiming what has been known throughout the entire Old Testament, that by God's providence, he even feeds the smallest of creatures. And he uses this example of the birds. He says, notice, they do not sow nor reap. They don't go plow field and plant grass. He says, uh, they don't do any of that, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, notice God uses means to accomplish his will. The birds don't sit around and wait and say, well, God's going to feed me, so I'm just going to sit here with my mouth open. Now, little baby chicks do that, little baby birds do that, right? But they don't wait around. They actually go hunting for their food. They go look for their food. So which is it? Do they find food or does God feed them? Listen to me. God's providence and his sovereignty are, are over everything of this world, even the underground world. God is sovereign over those worms. God, even by his providence, 
determines where those worms will be so that the bird can find that worm at that particular moment of time. That's the extension of God's sovereign hand. That's what he means by he feeds these birds. God uses means to accomplish his will, but God is ultimately the cause for the success of these birds who are being fed. Jesus applies God's providence over the animals. He applies this to his providential care over you and over me. It's the argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, are you not much worth much more than they? If your heavenly Father cares so much for the birds of the air to feed them, to provide the food that they need for their daily living, how much more will he not provide for you and I? Are you not worth much more than they, he says, rhetorically? The answer is yes, because you and I are made in the image of God. We are different than the creatures of the earth. We were created to have dominion over the creatures, and we were made in God's image after his likeness. Now, to emphasize this point regarding how far God's providence extends, flip over just a couple pages to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus uses a similar bird analogy to convey the same truth. Now, here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is commissioning his 12 disciples, and he's encouraging them because he's sending them out, and he's encouraging them not to fear what may happen to them, not even to fear death itself. That's the context here. But look at verse 29 in in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. Now, in the verse 29, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground, meaning not one of them will die, apart from your father. Now that word is anew in the Greek, and when that is combined with a person in the genitive case, I'm getting technical, but it's important, the definition and the meaning of that word is apart from their will or intervention. Okay? Because some people want to say, well, yeah, that just means God knows when the bird's going to die. No, actually, what Jesus is saying is that not one single bird will fall to the ground dead apart from the sovereign will and intervention of your Father. That's God's sovereignty. That means when anything falls to the ground, it was because it was God's plan and will for that bird to fall at that exact same time and place. Now, can you imagine, he's sending his disciples, he's commissioning them to go out and to proclaim the gospel, and he's saying, don't fear what men can do to you. Don't fear that they can kill you, because not even one bird will fall to the ground outside my sovereign will. This is why R.C. Sproul could say there's no such thing as a maverick molecule in all of the universe. All of the molecules and all of the plants, animals, and the whole universe are inside and under the sovereign decree and will of God. 
So what do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of when that is our God? Friends, that's not the type of God you hear in the pulpits today. That's not the type of God that's preached in most churches. The type of God that's preached in most churches is an impotent God who can't do anything, who can't have any success, who's just hoping and pleading for people to come to him and is a miserable failure. But that's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Don't worry. This is the type of God that you serve, who is sovereign over all of creation. Now, back to our text, the second illustration, verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, Will he not uh, much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, this could have been an immediate visual for them where they were on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he could have pointed, right? He could have looked at the, look at the lilies in the field right there, right? They don't toil nor spin. Jesus is making the same point, like, what do these lilies do? Do they, do they work to clothe the grass of the field? But no, your father clothes the grass of the field with these beautiful flowers that have more glory than the, than the best, most glorious man-looking thing as Solomon's temple. He says that none of it can touch what I can create and the beauty that I can create. And this grass and these flowers, they're going to be dead soon. And your father clothes the grass of the field that's alive today and thrown in the furnace to burn tomorrow. How much more? It's again, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If I clothe the grass of the field to make it look so beautiful, how much more will I not take care of your substance? How much will I clothe you? Now, we don't have the problem, most of us, with worrying about where we're going to get our clothes from. Most of us have closets full that we will probably hardly touch, right? But it's not just clothing. He's talking about the basic necessities of life, that we need not to worry. And then he says, you of little faith. This is a rebuke. Jesus often rebuked his disciples uh, with this term, with this phrase, you of little faith. See, they should have known these things. And so what Jesus wants us to know with these two illustrations is that we need to not muster ourselves up and have greater faith. Okay, I just need to have more faith in God, so I'm going to try harder. That's not what he's saying here. He uses these illustrations to inform us and to teach us. What he wants us to understand is to grow in our understanding of God's providential care over all of creation over you and over me. So instead of trying to muster yourself up to stop worrying, to stop or to have more faith, what you ought to do is increase your view of the sovereignty of God and his providential care over creation. And this will increase your faith and will weaken your temptation to worry. So that's the root and the remedy. Now the result, look at verse 
31. Here is the result. After he gives these two illustrations pointing to his providence and his sovereignty over all creation, he says, do not worry then. Here is the summation. Here is the result. Once you and I understand these great truths of God's providence, then we shall not worry. So he uses this as a, as a reason. Do not worry then because of these things. Because I feed the birds, because I clothe the grass of the fields, then do not worry, he says, because of these truths. Next, Jesus gives a secondary and supporting motivation not to worry. Look at verse 32. As if it wasn't enough to understand God's sovereignty over creation, he gives us another reason. Verse 32, he says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Now, Gentiles here could be another word used for non-believers, those who have no idea on how wonderful our God is. Those who have no idea how God is sovereign over all of creation, he says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. What's he mean? All of the material things of this world, non-believers seek. And not only seek, the word here is eagerly seek. That's how it's translated, uh, epizateo. Epi is a preposition. It means in, in, on, around, everything. So it's a, it's a word that's connected to uh, the word for seek to put the emphasis on eagerly seeking. Okay? Non-believers, all they have in this life is what they see, the material things of the world. And Jesus is saying don't worry because that's what the unbelievers do. They don't have any eternal life in them. All they do is eagerly seek after and form idols in the things of the earth. That's what the Gentiles do. That's what unbelievers do. And friends, if you're in Christ, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then there ought to be something different about us. There ought to be something different where the world sees that, hey, you're not worried about all these things happening like I'm worried about all these things happening, right? Uh, And so that's what Jesus is saying here, that the the non-believing world, all they have are the material things in this life. So while we can be concerned about things that we see, we can have the peace of God that passes all understanding because the very peace of God is in us. The God of peace resides in us. His Holy Spirit is in us if you are in Christ. So there ought to be something different uh, about us. We ought to set our mind on heavenly things and not material things. And Jesus reminds his disciples that life is more than food, verse 25. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. The outside world has no concept in this. We saw this with COVID, right? How how much did fear instill in the non-believing world during COVID? Because life was all they had. Life was it. You take away life from a non-believing world and people freak out. You take away that and they will do anything. They will give up all their freedoms. They will do anything to keep their life. And that's how I, and believers, we ought to not be that way. 
We ought to be wise. We ought to be concerned. But we ought to not be consumed with worry about these things because we have an eternal view upon life. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's focus. Uh, Well, he ends by repeating the command again in verse 34. He says, Do not worry then about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. And this is... This is the crux, verse 33 and 34 are the crux of this part of the sermon, that we ought to not be worried about the things about tomorrow. We ought not to be worried about if God's going to provide for us or not. We know he will. We're not, we shouldn't be worried about, you know, do we have enough money for retirement? We, we shouldn't be worried about are we going to have uh, the substance we need to, to feed and clothe our family next year. We ought to be, verse 33, seeking first his kingdom, seeking first his righteousness. And then he says, all these things will be added unto you. What joy there is, friends. What joy there is in understanding and believing in God's sovereignty and his divine providence. This frees us from the bondage of worry and it fuels us when we can understand that God's providential care and his sovereignty is over all creation. It fuels our desire and motivation to advance the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it fuels us to advance in our own sanctification to become more like Jesus Christ who saved us. We need to have the right focus we need to focus, A, on today. Doesn't mean we can't plan for things. We ought to plan. But he says, do not worry about tomorrow. Today, he says, has enough trouble of its own. We need to be focused rightly on today. We need to seek first the kingdom, seek first his righteousness, and seek to be used wholly of God for his glory. Not tomorrow, but today. We need to seek to be focused, to advance the kingdom, and to take ground for Christ. So friend, why are you worried about so many things, as Jesus asked Martha? Romans 8, 31 and 32, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, the context of this passage is around salvation. But you can argue the greater to the lesser. If Jesus provides all we need for our salvation, sanctification, eternal life, how much more will he provide for the little, minute, material things of the world? Amen? Now, that's the kicker, though the things that he determines to be needful. We must understand that we always have everything we need, but it's not what we think we need. It's what God has determined what's needful for us. And that's where I think the rubber hits the road with many people. Many of us think, oh, I need these things. I don't have these things. Friends, if you don't have it, God says you don't need it because he promises to provide all things that you need. Okay? So Jesus himself, to be reminded, he is our king. He rules and reigns over us. 
and a good king takes care of his servants. So why would we ever doubt that Jesus would not take care of us? Jesus is the good shepherd who died for his sheep and lives to tenderly care for them. Shepherds care for their sheep. Is Jesus your good shepherd? Then why do you worry? Y'all seen that video of that, that sheep that's stuck in that little crevice of the ditch, right? And the guy's pulling it out. They finally get it out. What does the sheep do? Runs and jumps right back in it. Because sheep are just dumb. Uh, and, and, and we're given the picture of being sheep. So figure that one out for yourself. Uh, but aren't we, yeah, we're pretty, pretty not smart people sometimes. We kind of jump into the same sin over and over again, make the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, but Jesus is the good shepherd, and a good shepherd takes care of their sheep. If he is your shepherd, friends, then he makes you lie down in green pastures. If Jesus is your shepherd, he leads you be- beside quiet waters. He restores your soul. He guides you in the path of righteousness for his namesake. If Jesus is your shepherd, you have no need to fear because he is with you. His rod and staff comfort you. Goodness and loving kindness will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. However, if you are not born again or trusting in Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then the Lord is not your shepherd, and you have no need. You have no peace within you. will never have peace within you because you are not one of his sheep. You need to repent and come to Christ. Come to the good shepherd. Put your faith and trust in Christ alone in the good shepherd, and he will give you everlasting life. So brothers and sisters, stop worrying. Consider the birds. Consider the fields. Consider the providence of your Father and find peace in His rule, in His reign, not seeking to grasp and put everything under your own control. He is in control, you are not. Meditate upon these truths when you're tempted to worry. As I started, uh, as I mentioned, this is something that every Christian struggles with at one form or another in your Christian uh, walk And we need to be active. We need to be uh, seeking to grow in this area. Uh, You know, ladies, this this can hit you, I think, harder than than many. Although it's uh, guys, you're not immune to this. Uh, But ladies, when you see yourself growing uh, in this area of trusting in the sovereignty of God, you can be like the Proverbs 31 woman in verse 25, where it says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs or smiles at the future. Uh, that word means to laugh at, with scorn. You know, when we're walking in, in the Spirit of God in such a way with the power of God within us, uh, ladies and men, we can look at the future and we can laugh it to scorn. Uh, as it says here, we can smile at the future because we know that our good shepherd, our king who rules over us, who takes care of us, is there in the future just as he he is in the present and has been with you in the past not confidence in ourselves not confidence in our ability and what we can do to provide for us but the confidence the faith is in our good shepherd and his providence 
And then when we look in the future and laugh, we can put our hand to the plow today and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, he says, will be added unto you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, for your word and your promises. God, your your providential hand we see is over all these things, Lord. I thank you that you give us these illustrations of the birds and the fields, Father, to, uh, to help us see, God, just how, just how at work you are, Lord, just how uh, much your, your rule and reign are over all your creation, God, that um, nothing is outside of your hand, but you are in control of it all. So, Father, I pray that you would help us, uh, help us, Lord, to, to not try harder, God, but to grow in our understanding, Lord, just how much you care for your people. Help us grow in our understanding uh, of your rule and your reign over this earth. That it would give us the confidence, Father, to put our hands to the plow, to seek first the kingdom and all your righteousness, Father. That we would have such, not pride, God, but such a godly confidence in you, uh, Lord, that people would look at us and say, why are you so at peace? Uh, Father, then we can introduce them to the God of peace. We thank you for the time together to worship, Lord. We give you honor and praise in Jesus' name.